I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners, on this edition of the program, a conversation I recorded earlier this year with Matt Clement, editor of the recent Zero Books anthology, No Justice, No Police, The Politics of Protest and Social Change. In this conversation, we'll be discussing the radical movements in the U.S. and U.K., against policing since the advent of Black Lives Matter. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. A note, by the way, that if you're a subscriber to my Patreon, you can hear episodes like this one before the rest of my listeners. So keep that in mind and enjoy the episode. Welcome to Parallax Views, Matt Clement, who is the editor of the new Zero Books volume, No Justice, No Police, The Politics of Protest and Social Change. How are you doing today? No, I'm not so bad. Thanks, Georgie. Cheers. So, uh, Matt, I guess where I want to start is... uh, how did this book initially come together? It's a volume with uh, various different authors uh, commenting not just on uh, the issue of policing, but also of uh, protests. Absolutely. It's about how they all come together, I guess. Um, I mean, like everyone else in most of the world, you know, I was uh, interested when uh, George Floyd was killed and we saw the sudden re-explosion of of Black Lives Matter. Um, And I guess what really made me think I should do something in response to it was uh, about three weeks later, when uh, in Bristol, UK, the uh, protesters pulled down the statue of the uh, slave slave trader Edward Colston and ended up sort of um, holding the statue in a kind of um, mock-up of the execution of George Floyd measure because it was very much a protest called in the name of Black Lives Matter. I mean, in Bristol, I used to live in Bristol for for 20 years. Um, There'd been a long-standing campaign about the city's civic authorities' refusal to come to terms with slavery, um, which had just been going on and on for ages. and coming up against, um, you know, obscurity, obtuseness on a very big level. Um, and I think, you know, the the initiative of Black Lives Matter was just that one extra thing that emboldened people to say, let's do something. Let's actually, you know, take out the statue. Um, and there were nearly 10,000 people at that demonstration. Uh, 
And again, it had good international repercussions because it was just coming after George Floyd and everybody was talking about the issue. And clearly it linked him with all the statues issue that we know about in Confederate America, well, America generally, just as we do in, in Britain and other places of empire. So when those two came together, I thought, well, I know about Bristol. I know about Black Lives Matter. I wrote about it in my previous book about the people's history of rights, protest, and the law. So, so why don't I try and put something together? Um, but I thought it makes sense to edit a book because, to me, what was exciting about the Black Lives Matter explosion was the sheer variety of people, of ages, of genders, and everything that got involved in the protest. And they often had different things to say. It wasn't just, you know crazy socialists like myself or anarchists, though it was those people, but it was many other people too. And that was what was so heartening about it. So I thought, let's try and get a book that captures something of the flavour of just the sheer, you know, diversity of voices. And of course, I was aware that um, Black Lives Matter is a particular response of people protesting about policing, but clearly the protest police connection is very strong in lots of ways. I've written a lot about riots in the past in Britain and elsewhere, and nearly every time it's been a, a, an outrage by the police that was the spark for those riots. Uh, and at the same time, since 2019, so it's 2020, obviously, when I first started thinking about this, since 2019 at least, we'd had this new wave of protest measures all over the globe about all sorts of issues, not just racism, though that was often up there, but also about corrupt governments increasingly turning to the police and the army to keep them in power, and also corrupt governments being increasingly blatant about how criminal they were being themselves, not covering up and hiding it in the way that they used to do so so much in the past. So it felt like a more criminalised ruling class, a more angry and protesting lower classes, section of lower classes in all sorts of different areas who want to get together and uh, are creating new social movements. And let's let's try and get together a book that, that brings a flavour of that together. So it's interesting, you know, I think the period from, I would say, 2019 to uh, 2020, there were protests around the globe on different issues. And of course, uh, after George Floyd in spring of 2020, there were massive protests. Where do you see us at now um, in 2023? Uh, because I know mm. in the U.S. at least, uh, both political parties, um, even the Democrats now, have tried to distance themselves from the um, protest movement or at least uh, the issues related to abolish the police. You know, even Democrats Absolutely. sort of sort of pushed away from that. And of course, Republicans were always very much against it here. Always, uh, always, so, yeah. so what is your take on where the movement is at now? Because I feel like it's uh, not being discussed nearly enough in a lot of ways. No, no, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, obviously, it comes as no great surprise, does it? I mean, you know, it was only about a week after um, um, Donald Trump's kind of supporters assault on the pentagon that that biden was like flooding the place with united states flags you know hundreds and hundreds of them all over washington to try and reassure the public that he was going to be a a safe president not some sort of champion of black lives matter or anything like that and so it's not that surprising that the democrats uh ha have just been very mainstream and have, have distanced themselves from the protests i mean let's not forget that obama also was very adept at distancing himself from any whiff of protest all the for the two terms he was in office so we're not that surprised when biden does the same um and of course that does make it harder but it seems to me what what strikes me four years on is just you know no one could have predicted the sheer diversity of different social movements and protest movements that have erupted in unexpected places ever since then. And, I, and it feels to me like there's, you know, an ongoing momentum, you know, that, for example, we've seen all of the stuff around climate protests, and they're not unrelated. You know, a lot of the same sort of people sometimes get involved. A lot of people who are sympathetic with both movements, even if they're not out on the streets, are sympathetic with the aims of both and have concerns about, you know, 
the planet as well as racism institutions. And clearly in Britain, um, we've had an extra facet, I guess, because, you know, not only did we have quite a big echo of the American movement in 2020, with some quite decent protests, and, and that not just the Bristol one, but many others as well around the statues and other issues and the racism of, of the British police. Um, but also, you know, we, we've seen that continue in many ways in Britain. And we've seen a real crisis, relative crisis, uh, for the British police, you know, the, the head of our British, uh, the Metropolitan Police, by far the largest police force in the country, has had to stand down uh, an innumerable number of scandals. I mean, they just kept going one after another. We talk about some of them in the book, but I was worried because the book was effectively finished by about Easter 22, but the publisher wasn't releasing it till 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 just now. I was thinking, oh, what a shame. This is topical. I hope it doesn't go out of fashion. But certainly in the UK, it hasn't because the, the police just keep being exposed for violence, for scandals, for um, all sorts of horrendous kind of um, WhatsApp groups that sharing racist and sexist stuff for uh, um, many, many police officers who are actually ending up in court for like serial sex crimes. I think almost the, the concern about institutionalized sexism has kind of caught up with institutionalized racism and in some ways almost overtaken it in a horrible, bloody cocktail of, you know, both elements that they're being exposed on at the moment. So, you know, there's a lot of feminist activists and stuff who would have, were also involved in Black Lives Matter, but I think their own, that's grown even more for women because of the uh, the way that the police's sexism has been exposed so blatantly. So it just kept rumbling on and none of us could have predicted exactly which ways it would have gone. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's still a lot going on. And I think, yes, maybe in America, it's Black, be it Black Lives Matter movement per se has been a little bit paused because although we did have the 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 killing early in the year didn't we in um was it in memphis which which got another echo and i think you will keep getting echoes but uh i think you know there will be other political issues and they will keep blending in together like like they do seem to be doing an awful lot at the moment the protest policing thing i mean in britain you know we've had quite extensive raft of new laws i know in america i talk a bit about you know trump trying to legislate um critical race theory out of the you know, as demonise it and and certain other measures like that. But it, in Britain, the, the Tory government has gone crazy with more laws to curtail protest. You know, we've we've got kind of pre-crime protests coming in now, where um, you know, people are, can be arrested um, because the police have got information on them that says that they're going to commit various offences. Um, that's so wild. Pretty, that's uh, that's yeah, like yeah. something straight out of a Philip K. Dick novel. It's that's like a Minority K. Report. Really, exactly, it is. Thank goodness there's no Tom Cruise in sight, but they, they, they really are. They really are. Uh, it's horrendous. You know, literally, please, we're not used to people, for example, we've never had the no-knock warrants in Britain. So we're not used to police just blasting into your house without even a warrant, without even having, but, but now they're doing some of that stuff and, and they're just targeting particular places. And, and also they're jailing quite a lot of people. You know, they're now saying, you know, if we have some of that information on you, you don't have to do anything and we can give you up to 51 weeks in jail. So they're really trying to just put in things like that to go, look, we'll put, you know, you can be, you can lose nearly a year of time just on a principle without even having done anything. They're trying to, to squash it in that way. Personally, I've argued this is a very dangerous path because people don't have anywhere else to go. Do you know what I mean? I do not think you will succeed in in muting protests yes there'll be some people who quite understandably will be a little cautious because i think oh, i don't want to get sent to prison but I, you think that's going to stop protest especially when with all the cost of living price rises all the all the the squeeze you know we're seeing in britain a rise in um in strikes industrial strikes uh over the last year and i think there's been a little bit of a a growth in America as well. You know, the, the areas that lots of sociologists have enjoyed writing off as irrelevant over the last 30 years, like strikes in the working class, seem to be making a comeback. We've got a fantastic um, series of protests at um, Amazon warehouses where people are unionising, and they're not just unionising, they're kind of organising mass pickets 
it's 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 they're all young people. They're mostly under thirty. It's very multicultural bunch of people organizing these big street protests that are mass pickets to prevent to try and persuade people not to go in it's uh it's you know it's fascinating if it spreads it hasn't yet spread beyond you know one or two uh plants but there's you know there's dozens of amazon plants in britain if it if it does spread you know it'll be it'll be an enormous significance so it's really interesting and no one could have predicted that we were going to see that return of militancy so lots of unexpected things happening i guess i'm saying one thing that always comes up in the debates about policing in the U.S. and especially in the mainstream media is, um, you know, sort of uh, arguing about the slogans that are used. So, you know, people okay. will say now, uh, you know, abolish the police or defund the police. Uh, these are bad slogans. And it seems like, you know, we get caught up in that debate of, what is your view on how hmm. the U.S. sort of treats that? Where you know we, well, we sort of argue over the wording. We, we we get a little bit of that too, to be honest, over here. And I mean, I teach criminology, and uh, yeah, we get a we get some policing experts who who uh, will will probably take that kind of view. They will they will say you all stand for abolition. Um, there's problems with the notion of abolition, and they'll kind of then weigh in on that to try and discredit your claims. But frankly, I don't think it washes with the students, for example, um, and the people who are studying these issues, because they say, well, you know, call it abolition, call it defunding, call it, we need really serious reform. It doesn't, in a way, it doesn't matter what you call it. What we're saying is the it's not really a debate about, oh, we want to be Simon Pure revolutionaries by saying abolition. It's just about, look, the police, you know, are completely out of control in in unhelpful ways and we want to change that I, I don't think many of the protesters have illusions that you know the system will let us abolish the police or that governments will magically defund it was quite i mean i was quite surprised when in america i, I was going to say not to interrupt in, you but yeah go uh, on, it, go on. It, in a lot of ways uh it wasn't you know like a um a demand that people thought, yeah, they're going to abolish the police. It was more like, yeah. we're threatening you. We're, we, yeah. we, we are upset about this. And, yeah. you know, saying abolish mm. the police, that sort of gets everyone's ear, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, there's something, there's something in that. But I mean, certainly there's a couple of contributions in the book that from Americans talking about, um, you know, some of those early initiatives post the Floyd, you know, in 2021, where you were seeing some states taking some measures, weren't you? Uh, and people were, some of them were like even experimenting with a bit more democracy as part of it and saying, we want to get citizens to tell us what they want to do and how they want us to switch budgets around a bit. I know a lot of that has got reversed since, but even so, the very fact that people contemplated it and talked about it was, you know, sends a message that, look, you know, if people want something done, we, we will look at it. And I think that that's good. You know, that 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 begins begins a debate. It's a little bit harder in Britain because you know, federal authorities, local authorities don't fund the police. Nearly all the funding for the police is in Britain is centrally directed. And therefore, you know, our home office, i.e. the government, was never going to um, never going to make any concessions of that sort. So interestingly, they've just done something over the last week where the Metropolitan Police, the London Police, have said that they will stop attending um, mental health emergency situations now in a way that's you know that's what we have wanted we have wanted to stop the police being the people who go to mental health situations because surprise surprise lots of people have died and been injured as a result of the police's sensitive interventions um but of course it's typical of this government that there's no suggestion that there's some money coming from somewhere else to make sure social services can do it so it's just leaving it up in the air but even so, I think the fact that they've even come out with that comment, the police, shows that they're going to go in that direction, shows that, you know, they're being pushed into responding to this public pressure. You know, the public, we don't like the way you deal with this. The public don't like the way you're dealing with women. We don't like the way you're dealing with black people. You know, so they they, they are, you know, they are, they are assailed by all of this. The actual, the police chief of Scotland, chiefs police Scotland, as they're called, 
he actually came out last week and said, okay, we are institutionally racist and sexist and homophobic, which is what the latest big report on the Met said, but all the police have been, chiefs have been busy denying it, as have the government. Oh, well, there's problems, there's problems, but we don't want to admit the institutional bit. But this Scottish chief copper, for some reason, has come out and said, we are. <laughs> so I think it just shows they're not, they're not quite sure how best, the police are not quite sure how best to respond. The government's, you know, has been has been affected by this wave of protest in a positive way. Uh, you know, just the fact we got these convictions, not just of Chauvin, but of similar characters in, in Britain as well, is a positive game because we never had it before. We never had black people um, seeing an officer actually jailed for killing someone. We'd never had that before, and now we have. So it's, it's, it's a breakthrough. I'm not saying they won't fight it, but it, it's a breakthrough that's happened at all. When it comes to uh, talking to people about these issues, about police yeah. reform, sure. what do you think the uh, biggest misconceptions people have, or even how do you how do you talk to people that are skeptical? Um, but you know, I think there's less of that now. I think people know there's a problem with police, but I think they don't. A lot of people don't know how to deal with it, um, no, or haven't no. thought about how to deal with it uh, in the way a lot of uh, people like yourself have. I agree. I, I don't think that most people are sceptical about the idea that the police do a bad job. They're more sceptical about, is there anything you can do about it? Oh, abolition's unrealistic. Or, oh, you can protest all you like, but they keep passing new laws and you'll all end up in jail. And certainly, you know, with some groups, they have done this. I mean, in Britain, certainly the climate protesters, you know, there's a guy who occupied a road bridge going into London. He's just been given a two-year sentence. There's a guy who, you know, glued himself onto a football goal before a big match. He got nearly nine months in jail. You know, so they, they are picking on protesters. Um, I think it shows the need for numbers. That would be my argument, you know, that actually when you have these, you know, I'm, I'm all in support of them, but slightly self-appointed small numbers of activists doing quite extreme things that can be quite disruptive. Um, they're very brave. But, of course, because they are smaller numbers, you know, they can suddenly face something like a jailing. And we haven't got, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people to be standing outside the police station demanding they be released, you know. So as a result, you know, they, they can be they can be picked off really by the authorities. So I think that's that's an interesting lesson to to learn about the moment. You know, there's, but there's, there's lots of lessons we can learn. But most of people's scepticism probably is can protest work. I think that's lots of people would agree these days. They wouldn't say no point protesting or what are you fussing about? World could be a lot worse. Most people agree that the world is really bad. <laughs> it is very concerning. It's just there's still a lot of people who kind of don't have faith that human agency can actually stop the slide. And, you know, if things get desperate enough, it kind of it kind of creates that situation. I think, for example, I think in Britain, we all thought, I certainly thought, you know, for example, oh, trade unionists in the 1970s, you know, they must have been very different to us because they were they were more strong, they were more organised, so they went on strike and they won demands. We're not like that anymore. But actually, why they, why they went on strike is because they got, inflation went really high, so suddenly they were losing like 5%, 10% of the value of their wages every year. Their only chance was to strike, and that's why they got reputation for being militant. We know that because exactly the same thing's happening over here now. You know, teachers, nurses, train drivers, bus drivers, all sorts of people have been on strike for exactly that reason. They've got militant because they suddenly go, well, that's another, you know, 10% of my wages that I couldn't afford to lose that I'm losing because, you know, I've only got offered 2% and inflation's 10%, 12% more, you know, so... You know, we are seeing those conditions being recreated at the moment, which is quite, in some ways, quite inspiring, although it's not it's not on an enormous scale. I mean, that's why you don't want to get too excited. You know, it's it's not the revolution around the corner. It's still kind of promising growth in kind of in grassroots movements, which I'm quite pleased about. But it's still it's not it's still not enormous, not enormous enough to shape the government in any way. Out of curiosity, what was your journey, uh, your own personal journey in regards to uh, dealing with these issues? How did you come to be 
yeah. uh, concerned with issues around policing. Yeah. Well, police are an interesting thing, isn't it? I remember I was a I was a student, sort of radical, as they say, involved in protests, and I seem to think in my first year, the police turned up at our little protest on the university campus, and uh, so I seem to think, being very liberal and entitled, I just told them it was outrageous and what they didn't have any business here, and about two minutes later, I was being pulled along the pavement by my hair, and it wasn't a great abuse of human rights, to be honest, it was more humorous, it didn't, it didn't damage me, but it did make you think, oh, you know, I can sit with the police if they don't like you. If you're giving them cause, they clearly don't, you know, they, they don't have any qualms about using violence to uh, achieve their ends. Uh, and then, yeah, my last year at university was actually the year of the miners' strike, eh, 1984, 1985, where I spent quite a lot of time supporting those groups of workers. And again, you saw the police operating in a very militaristic fashion in a very kind of group think way as well, doing all sorts of operations that that showed them up. Uh, and all that period of the 1980s, you know, they tended to be called uh, Thatcher's boot boys because they got a big pay rise in the year she came in jail. She organised an awful lot of austerity, a bit like a bit like Reagan did in the 80s. The trade unions got a uh, got beaten and uh, and they, you know, they need the Thatcher needed the power of the police in a quite aggressive fashion to see off militant picketing and the things the trade unions had relied upon in the past. So being witness to that, you know, you felt the injustice of it. Um, you still, you know, you felt we were on the losing side, but you also felt it's not right. And, you know, I guess I was radicalized by that process to a degree. Still regard myself as a, a socialist who wants to be on the side of those kind of fights. And then Clearly, there's been, you know, lots of mobilizations around police racism. The Stephen Lawrence one in the 1990s, again, you saw an absolutely outrageous police operation there to, to deal with those people who tried to stand up to their collusion with the racists over that issue. Um, so you had lots of personal reasons to feel like, you know, the police were abusing human rights, yours included, and, and it was and they needed to be stood up to where possible. Um, and it was really, I think, the one that really made me feel like it was possible was at the very end of Margaret Thatcher's reign in 1990, there was a, a big demonstration against the poll tax in London, and the police were there to in Trafalgar Square to try and control the issue like they normally did with police horses and uh, kind of a show of strength. But the sheer numbers on this protest meant that suddenly they were the ones that were surrounded rather than the other way around. And there was a sudden sense in the crowd of goodness me, we're we're the, we're in the powerful position that here, not them. It's not like we're not we're not going to chase them away, but they can't chase us off here. And in fact, you know, Thatcher resigned after that protest. Uh, the poll tax was abandoned, and the police admitted that they kind of lost control. And it showed us that the police were not invincible, however much they try and dress themselves up militarily. And I guess, you know, having worked in youth justice and, and, and taught criminology for quite a few years now, um, these issues come up an awful lot where you're just looking at, um, at uh, the, com the combination of the relationship of the citizens and consent. And, you know, it, it becomes clear that, you know, we're not conspiracy theorists who think the police have got some ultimate level of power and the state that means that they've got some secret plan to control us. They've got lots of plans to try and control us, but it's always to try to. It's always, you know, hegemony is always something they're trying to achieve rather than succeeding. And although they don't always fail, it's a battle between them and the other side, really, about whether whether they succeed in convincing us to give up or whether sometimes they get pushed back. And sometimes their own excessive repression creates the react amplifies the reaction against them as well. And I think we've seen quite a lot of that in recent times, which is again leading, I think has grown the movement against against the place and just to a certain extent against the system. Although people don't don't talk about being anti-system in the same way as they did in the 68 generation, and they don't join regular organizations to show their alliances in quite the same way. I think there's a lot of people who agree with a lot of the ideas there and think it's about what's wrong. It's just they're maybe a little bit more individually cynical about whether we can change it. But it's a, 
feels like the time are in the balance a little bit. Yeah, I think, too, the other thing um, with policing is that we see this connection between uh, policing and racism. But I think people also have seen in recent years uh, with cases like the um, here in the U.S., there was a case in 2011, uh, Kelly Thomas, who was a um, homeless man diagnosed with schizophrenia. And he was he was a white dude. But, you know, he was he was basically suffocated by these police and crying out for his dad to help him, Uh, you know. And I think like people realize, I mean, policing and racism are connected, but it's the police will go after anyone, really, especially, you know, I I remember the rapper uh, Ice-T said, you know, um, he did this whole song called No Lives Matter, where he's basically arguing the police don't really care um, about you know, Keller, if you're part of the poor or the working class, uh, you're you have a target on your back is basically what he was saying. And I think people are starting to realize that. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that that's a good slogan for, for, for the, from the police point of view. No lives. There. Nobody really matters to them if you're in their way, <laughs> causing a problem to them. No, I think I think that is right. And uh, and I think people can, you know, people can see that. But I do think, yeah, the the other side, the, of it is which has kind of come up with what we kind of call populism but this this idea that you know if you look like um someone who's quite happy to endorse the police and quite happy to endorse the use of violence against your opponents that that might actually be a vote winner that kind of politics right the, the law and order politics we've had in the u.s yeah, going yeah. back to like I mean, nixon it goes it goes back doesn't it obviously it can go back to nixon and the silent majority times thing but i think i've argued that there's a bit of a switch here because you know with nixon there really was a silent majority so you know he was going for straight division you know look at all these radicals they're terrible but lack- thankfully most of you hate them like me and therefore he's done the division hasn't he now i think it's slightly different you know i think uh Maybe there aren't quite so many openly identifying radicals to be frightened of, but when you do see it, the the majority are not so automatically on the side of the police or on the side of, you know, we must repress this, we must stop this, we must, we can't be having, there are limits to protest. They don't seem to be, a lot of people are a lot more ambiguous. Obviously, there's still some die Yeah, that's, that's what but, I was going to get at, is I don't think it's just yeah. an issue that radicals take up anymore. Uh, yeah, like, it's exactly. not just... Radicals that are asking no, these questions. No, no I love the cha- chapter. Uh, there's a chapter in the book by this chap, um, Daniel Monty from St. Louis University, and uh, he got his students to do um, a survey of small towns, you know, and he just got the students to like literally go to some very unusual little couplets, really small towns in very different bits of America, if you like the most unlikely places, and find Black Lives Matter protests and find out what they could about what people said, what sort of people were on it. Very different demographic to our typical, you know, Chicago or New York or Baltimore or protests, you know, different sort of people, but they were on it, you know. And uh, and it just shows that, yes, it's far from just people who identify as radicals that were kind of looking at things in that way. So that's 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 what's interesting. Could you talk a little bit uh, about some of the other chapters in the book? Um, yeah. I really wanted to talk about the chapter on um, Appalachian social movements. Uh, in relation to all of this. Yeah, no, that, I thought it was an interesting chapter. I mean, Mark, Michael Coyle, he's a professor at um, Chico in Northern California, and Stephen Young, they, they, they wrote it, and uh, he's written a lot of stuff, sort of pro-abolition arguments. He's quite well-written, Michael. Um, but, yeah, they both wanted to write this chapter, and they said, look, you know, we are spotting interesting alliances between... Um, some of the Appalachian community and the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, and that and it, and it seems to go against the sort of superficial stereotype of like, you know, where rednecks, whatever that means, wouldn't identify with Black Lives Matter protesters. And they're saying it's much more complex than that. If you're in on the ground, you can see it. And that's what they tried to bring out, as well as also t- clearly talking about the objective reasons why that does make sense when you look at the history of radicalism of various bits of the Appalachians over the last century, essentially. So they, they mixed a historical overview with a kind of a uh, a suggestion of like, you know, different ways in which other different oppressed communities, even ones who don't automatically identify or haven't in the past, are kind of 
you know, looking at one another's situations and beginning to understand. I mean, you know, historically, in America and Canada, you know, you two nations where most white people were not very good at identifying with um, Native American interests. But I would suggest, you know, in the last decade, that has changed. Surely that's changed. You look at the the big protests over the oil pipelines and stuff, and and obviously the amazing stuff in Canada, where they've had a, a very strong reaction, haven't they, against the uh, the revelations about the way that their boarding schools and some of their other institutions had uh, abused communities, and people have got very angry about it. So it's it's interesting. I was going to say, uh, in case people are just watching the or or listening to the audio version of this, I like how you use the term rednecks and in quotes. Um, is it it is interesting i mean you know th- there has been a history of resistance in the appalachian region in the us yeah. uh, going back to things like the um the matwan massacre and the fights with the railroad gunmen of right. capitalism sort of types uh, when it comes right. to those issues so i thought that um that chapter was really interesting because those intersections are often very uh, underexplored you know and i think uh it makes you realize you don't have to go back very far in history to find interesting stuff. You know, I actually ended up reading a couple of uh, novels by um, the great American novelist, but quite mainstream novelist, Sinclair Lewis. And again, you just he picks up these issues about who were the who were the right wingers, who were the people the right wingers hated in the 1920s. And it's it's not people we would have thought of. Oh, it's the people in Montana or it's the people in, you know, the, you've got to know you've got to have a sense of the history to know about some of these different resistance movements and when they popped up and what went on and 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 the, the different echoes of them. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's important. And I, I think people are quite curious these days about all sorts of issues in that way. You know, um, I felt like with this book, you know, I, I'm, I just got to be open to letting anybody who wants to, contribute to uh you know to, to to do so i mean obviously if i if i really didn't like what they put i guess as the editor i might say oh no not that but in general all all sorts of different angles came in um and that was what was nice because you thought well this is all part of the debate really we want to get different people talking about it i mean i've noticed this in general we've had a few books come out related to the abolition issue and such like and the interesting thing is you think oh so many books will, will they just be the same but actually, everybody takes a different angle. You know, um, some are better than others, but none of them are copying one another. Do you know what I mean? Or the same arguments, because there's so many different things we can say about so many of these issues at the moment, I think. It's interesting. You also have a chapter in there uh, by the filmmaker Ken yes. Thero, uh on resistance imagery in struggles for justice. And that's talking mm-hmm. about... Uh, you know, the imagery we use for resistance movements uh, when it comes to cinema. And I thought that was an interesting um, topic to tackle because I think in, you know, in the course of what uh, the past, even like 40 years, we have seen uh, changes over time in how policing is portrayed uh, on screen. Um, You know, you look at a film from the 70s, it's very different from one made today, especially with how, policing is portrayed uh but is that true of resistance movements too mm, mm. It's, it's an interesting point i think yeah you're right about the, the changes in the in the cop shows certainly you know you can't imagine something like the shield for example being being written written in the 1970s or something um but it's also interesting to see how often it doesn't seem to make much difference and maybe a lot of the wrong people end up watching it or enjoying it. You know, they, you show graphic police violence towards innocent people and I'm sure some people just enjoy watching it for reactionary reasons, sadly. So you can't always just break break down stereotypes with new images and things, which I'm sure Ken Ferrer will be the first to say. But he, his, his chapter is really talking about these two particular films he wanted to make which showcased... Uh, black people dying in police custody and the campaigns they fought. And what's interesting in the chapter is 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 the lengths that the police try to go to actually ban the film screenings and ban the films altogether. I mean, luckily in the end, they managed to ensure that didn't happen. But um, and I think it would be they wouldn't even try now because things have got more open um, in terms of these sort of issues being discussed and aired. Uh, but it is interesting how when they think they can possibly get away with it, the police and other authorities seem very keen to just shut shut the whole thing down rather than uh, 
rather than even like expose it and denounce it in some way. I think I think we are seeing you know lots of lots of different ways in which you know alternative voices can can get out. Um, you know whether whether it's podcasts and YouTube videos and uh, and all the different other virtual ways in which people can access news. But uh, you know there's, there's the technology is helping to a certain extent there. But um, you know at the same time we still have quite a monolithic mainstream media structure. I think that doesn't really want to shift. I mean, to be fair, you know, I consider this a major victory. Uh, I know back in 2020, uh, the Paramount Network basically pulled the show uh, Cops from all its streaming, and then they canceled it completely. And, uh, you know, I consider that a huge victory because, excuse my language, I fucking hated shows like that, where right. it's just this this reality TV sort of celebration right. of, yeah. of, you know, yeah. just the worst kind of police imaginable. Mm. Yeah, actually, we've we've had a few of those similar style, and actually, I must I agree. I think they're just getting decommissioned. They're not they're not getting made as much. They do seem we were saturated with it, but it it doesn't seem to be what people want to see, which is clearly a good thing. Yeah, because it does celebrate the worst and and probably allow the police to think, well, we can just get away with anything then if people haven't got a problem with us behaving like that. But I think you know they are finding it. You know, I mean, certainly, you know they are finding you know we we had a, a, a new case about two three months ago that was exposed of basically a guy police serving police officer serial rapist for the last 20 years you know it's about 80 to 90 different offenses got taken into account you know and it, you know the the, the 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 record went back where they could go back and find so many instances where suspicions were raised and yet somehow nothing got done you know, at so many different levels. Um, and, it, you know, it did genuinely shock people. But I'm sure it genuinely shocked the police in the sense that they thought, how did, how did we let this get out? What, why, why is this out? But they do find it quite hard now to, uh, to completely, you know, repress such information, which is, which is good news. One thing I really wanted to talk with you about was, yeah. um, you know, the, the issue of riots uh, yeah. and your study of riots and how riots are sort of dealt with in this volume, mm-hmm. um, because it's it's always uh, a touchy topic, especially when, you know, a, a radical is talking to maybe someone that's uh, very liberal about this. Like you write in the book that, you know, liberal thinking often tries to um, uh, sort of undermine the protests by bringing up riots at times. Mm. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I one of the chapters that I think works well is is Jonathan Havercroft, where he just basically argues why is there no just riot theory, a bit like just wars, you know? Why is it? And he and he makes the case that people like Hannah Arendt and um, Michael Walzer and uh, John Rawls and other philosophers in the nineteen sixties, you know, they they were like Martin Luther King, civil rights, peaceful protest, tick. Detroit riots and other things cross, you know, that's not, that's negative. That won't get us anywhere. And he says, why, why is there this blanket thing? Um, and, and he uncovers that and he even uses quite easily in some ways, not that difficult to show even King himself would, would disagree with that and did with many of the points that he argues. And I think that just, that just shows that, um, you know, that side of it is is something you can, you can bring out that much more. I mean, from teaching criminology, Riot was always a term that it was a. You could argue it's problematic because people would say, "Well, from the criminology point of view, a riot's something that's a problem, and a problem needs to be stopped." And then we'll talk about the conditions beneath it and all of that. But of course, what about if a riot's something to be celebrated? What about if it is a just, just riot? What about if it's an uprising, which of course uh, many people called the riots that we've had in Britain on and off over the last forty years. They call them uprisings just to make the point. Hey. There's justice behind it. There's justification behind it. Um, and then, of course, I guess as a as a Marxist myself, I would say, you know, I would be of that 68 generation in terms of believing that, you know, consciousness in groups collectively can shift in collective situations like strikes and revolutions on a big scale, but also in riots too. And why do people join in? Why do, pe- why do riots grow? Why do people join in? 
and with it, there is so much evidence just from talking to people and stuff um of of that really that people find it exhilarating um because they feel like suddenly you know somebody talked about the rules gone it's the time when the rules go down um it's the time when you know to a certain extent the police feel like they're not in control um they certainly feel their control has been contested uh albeit often it's something that they did that actually sparked it off but you know that it, it's it's that that positive side of it is the, is the um is is what people get out of it collectively um yeah i mean we had a case two weeks ago in wales two teenage boys um died they were riding on a on an e-bike the bike was pursued by the police uh and you know as a result they kind of crashed the bike and died and uh, people then rioted in the area and turned over police cars and stuff like this. And, uh, you know, just said, you know, the, 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 why did you even need to pursue these boys, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it, that's that's just two weeks ago. And, you know, these things have happened many times over the years. So it shows the issues keep keep arising in that form. So the, the riot historically, you know, which I have with my history, um, you know, has, has always been the means that people have had available to them, even before we had industrial capitalism and trade unions and stuff like that. You know, then the only way people could organise collectively was on the streets. Um, and I think, you know, there again, you can go back. I've got it's that idea Greek of riots is the language of the unheard. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and also that they always have so many tar- similar targets. I opened my book of a history of riots with a an American academic who's actually a, a scholar of Roman history talking about, you know, riots are about attacking well-known statues, pulling down the houses of the rich and the famous, attacking symbolic targets. And that's Rome 2,000 years ago. But that's that's also, you know, that's also Georgian Britain. That's also America in the 2010s or, or, or Brazil or wherever. So it, it's amazing how these things do kind of endure over long periods, which kind of, Sure, they must have some value, I guess. One chapter I was interested in maybe getting a summary of, because I haven't sure. been able to go through it in depth, sure. is uh, Daniel J. Monty's chapter, the um, chapter on cultural unity, political divisiveness, and the Black Lives Matters protests. Yeah, yeah. This is the guy I was I was mentioning who, uh, who liked to pull out different um, small towns where the Black Lives Matter protests happened. And uh, I think part of it is a very long title, includes... A little bit about uh, uh, a bunch of momentarily confused white guys trying to work out what's going on. So he was. Yeah, I, I, I love the title. A momentary yeah, brotherhood of uncomfortable white men it. trying to figure yeah. stuff out. I mean, he's, he's full of good little lines, actually, Daniel. I've talked to him on and off over the years. He's quite a comedian. But, you know, it's just a nice observation that, like, you know, the most unlikely protesters, you know, people who might normally have been going to the barbecue or the DIY store, but they're out on a protest. Why is that? Because, you know, the echo of the George, George Floyd thing, even though they live hundreds of miles away in some little, little tiny little town in the back end of Arkansas or some other obscure state, and yet they still came out. You know, sometimes there was things like there was only some of these small towns, is like there was only one black family in the town, but what, what the, the girl in the town or something said, we should have a march. And the next day they have one and half the town came out, you know, and, the police looked a bit bemused, but mostly thought, well, we better not, you know, we don't want to get upset anyone here because clearly they don't all hate us. I'm just your local friendly police officer. I better just go along and show my face and, you know, look supportive. So that's, you know, that is very different to what we typically think of when we think about abolish the police, Black Lives Matter. So all sorts of different aspects of it come out. And I think that's what Daniel wanted to to bring out really the sheer diversity of it. You know, there, there was that figure, much quoted figure, wasn't there? I think from the New York Times that, you know, more people were out on May and June 2020 than had been in 68 on mobilizing on the streets. And that's remarkable when you think about how significant very many influential sort of people thought that year was. <laughs> Clearly, 2020 is not. As significant it's not an echo in the memory for so many years as the way that 68 did but you know more people that's extraordinary and this whole thing i think um again one of the other protesters um another veteran 
protester from Minneapolis, actually, August Nimps, the professor there, he said, you know, I was he was in on the 60s civil rights protests and he said, you know, we were nearly, you know, we it was a nearly all black protest. There were just a few white radicals with us, you know, and we'd all run when the police attacked us. And that's that's what the protests were like. And he says, look at it now, led by women. Uh, off in on many protests, as many white people as black, young people dominated. I mean, he says, what what a, a triumph of diversity compared to what we had before. And that's that's interesting because these are not, you know, these are these are not signs of a lack of radicalism. They're a sign of a of a, a broadening of the kind of um, potential scale of opposition, I think, which is, uh, you know, which is very good. One thing I was really interested in talking about, because I, I grew up in the era right after 9-11, and I think right. something we saw um, kick into high gear after 9-11, and it started really uh, with the war on drugs in the Reagan era, was militarization of the police, yeah. uh, you know, providing military equipment. I mean, I was yeah. in, um, I grew up in Pittsburgh, so I was around yeah. for the G7 protests in 2009. You had these police walking around in the full-on riot yeah. gear, the the yeah. the military-grade weapons, uh, the sound cannons. And, it, you know, that era after 9-11 really sort of kicked me into thinking about this stuff. Uh, because the militarization of police is uh, quite scary, in my opinion. I, I just want to talk a bit about that. Yeah, no, I think it is, and I mean, you know, it's been picked up by a lot of people, haven't it? There's a there's a a guy that talks a lot about it. Is wrote a new book last year called "The Horror of Police." Travis Lindemann is uh, from uh, academic over there, and that's that's interesting. Covers a lot of those aspects, and I've read all sorts of things about this power, you know, and we all know it was all about getting in free allocations of all the, the military stuff that they didn't, you know, it was left over from Iraq and other places, <laughs> allowed the police to have these, you know, massive levels of technology that were often very inappropriate for policing, actually. They're just like, well, you can have this. See how you get on with it, you know. Um, but the interesting thing is, you know, and we have a similar version of it in, in, in Britain as well. And clearly, you know, you go to France, the... Police are very aggressive on the streets there and always have been, really, ever since 68. You know, they've always really firing, you know, they fire grenades at the at the Yellow Vest protest there. And no, I was going to say get... we have like a new wave that just happened in France, too, of protests. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And more there. And, you know, people get blinded and they lose fingers and all sorts of stuff. And it, it is horrendous and we shouldn't doubt that. Um, but I also think it's important to recognize that you know even all the time throughout history the rulers require public consent for the policing to work even when it's militarized policing is if if the public really don't consent even if they're not in their thousands out on the street to stop it if they really don't like what they're seeing then then they the, the rulers lose our consent they might get sort of grudging acquiescence they might, they, you know, um, but, you know, that means they've not got a sense of they're not in control. I mean, at the end of the day, the police are there to help them ensure what they call social control. And control doesn't, you know, have, con you know, if you're having to hold the neck down, the, the hand down on the windpipe like Chauvin did, then you're not in control, actually. You're on the edge. You're about to lose control. In fact, look, and you often you generate that reaction. So, you know, I wouldn't want to belittle the militarization it is a nasty and horrible thing and of course with all the ai and all this sort of a nightmare stuff getting talked about it can only get worse can't it in terms of things that potentially could happen you know you know you could have police advancing where you think shit there's some is some program some algorithm gonna lead to them firing off some sort of offensive weapon at this point or putting a net over us or all sorts of things but you know if the scale of the opposition is broad enough, then they'll find that quite problematic. And I think they know that, which is why, you know, sometimes they don't use the militaristic tactic. And sometimes they do recognise that just doing that can create, you know, can create an oppositional situation and make things worse, can can uh, can make things more difficult for them. So, uh, yeah. Before we close out, one but thing I want to... Of course it is. And it's ironic because, and again, I talk about this... Yeah, go on. I was it's, it's ironic because, of course, you know, the reason that the police were set up, certainly in Britain in 1829, was because the army 
with their weapons were seen as too brutal in their repression of riots. And every time they did it, it led to uprisings, not least, of course, in America in 1776, when the British troops couldn't control the, 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 col the colonists and uh, basically the American Revolution started. But we had a big riot four years later in London in 1780, the same thing. And what that led to is a debate saying we've got to have a police force that are not armed, which is why our force are still mostly not armed. You know, so what I'm saying is that you know this consent, this search for consent is still on for our rulers, despite the military stuff. the The last thing I want to touch upon yeah. with you is, since you come at this from a a Marxist perspective, a, a socialist perspective, yeah. you personally do. Um, yeah. I have listeners that come from all different walks, including sure. uh, people that are more moderate liberal. Uh, sure. So I was curious if you were able to talk about for people that may not make the connection. What do you see as the connection between uh, policing, police states, and capitalism? Mm. Well, I think, you know, there, there's a strong connection. Um, but police states are an aspiration rather than a reality in most cases. Uh, you know, even when you get, if you like, the ultimate police state, somewhere like Putin's Russia, you know, you can argue they're not really very in control at the moment. You know, they're at great risk of actually being undone by their own, even more right-wing policemen than themselves that, that might well take to the streets against them or might well have launched some of the drones against them recently. So police states, I think most rulers know police states are not a long-term solution. They might, they might be a necessary short-term bout of repression when they're trying to stop something. But I think, I think they're kind of discredited. Um, but clearly, you know, capitalism as a system, you know, will will have recourse to, you know, using that legitimate, legitimate monopoly of the use of violence um, in situations where where they really think they need to use it to to prevent a threat to their to their control. So, you know, we're always going to be faced with the potential prospect of this, and I think that's in a way why it is encouraging that. Policing are the police are increasingly not trusted by more and more, especially younger generation of people, because it means that you've got more critical thinking people, a bigger percentage of critical thinking people about in the population. And I don't need to be a conspiracy theorist to say, but you know, if the system keeps making as many mistakes and creating as much unsustainability as we suspect as it has been over the last few years, if that keeps going. People, more people will convert their their critical faculties into, you know, how can we express this? How can we organise to stop this? And there'll be lots of different solutions, but I think there will be more and more people prepared prepared to do it. Um, and I think police states, you know, struggle in those situations. I mean, the classic situation is is Nazi Germany. You know, I mean, as soon as Hitler took power, what he did was immediately said every every serving policeman's got to be a supporter of the Nazi party. And if they're not already, of course, many of them already were, but he said, you know, the rest of you join up now because that's, that's we're going to be sitting the orders out. And that was very effective in terms of trying to crush the opposition. But I think, you know, that's, that's the threat. So it doesn't go away. It is there. So then with regards to the other um, question I was asking there, and I, sure. I was lumping police states in with that. When you're, uh, talking to someone who hasn't thought about how policing and capitalism sort of uh, intersect with each other. How would you explain that to someone who may not come from a socialist perspective? I suppose you'd probably want to just sort of um, get across the idea about, you know, how do we have the property relationships that we have? You know, inequality. Most people seem to think that the levels of inequality we've got in society these days are are getting worse and are unjustifiable on so many levels. So, you know, well, how come they've got so much? How did they get it in the first place? Who empowered them to have so much? Uh, and who protects them? You know, and often it's the police or an equivalent, some sort of military force that protects their right to exclusive property, which involves throwing other people off their land, you know, and that's just as true you know, in Britain in the 1600s or 1800s, as it is in the Amazon today, or, you know, even in parts of, of North America today, where, you know, fossil fuel companies and other 
capitalist interests are just you know seizing more assets etc even 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 at the level of like housing you know when you get you know there were people in east london being thrown out of a squat in uh you know because they can't afford to live there anymore they created an autonomous an autonomous space where about 40 of them are squatting so 100 police get sent in to, to kick them out even though there's a massive homelessness problem and they're not going to put anyone there in their place so i would be saying to people well, don't you think this is ridiculous? Don't people need somewhere to live? Why do the police do that job for them? You know, why is that part of their role? Um, but I also, we, we sometimes make a little bit of a mistake in Britain, I think some of the policing experts, that they regard the police as autonomous and acting off their own bat. And that's understandable because some of our police chiefs, like the American ones, are a bit crazy, make crazy statements. So you can think, oh, it's the police, they're off, they're off, on, off the leash. But actually, nearly the police are doing what the government want them to do, actually, I think. And we shouldn't let the government off the hook here. Do you know what I mean? The government, actually, they empower the police. They expect the police to do these jobs for them, uh, even though they might try and distance themselves when it goes wrong. And, <laughs> you know, they, they'll still, they still set those situations up. And so people need to see that, you know, the police are the government's guarantee that allows them to keep in office and do unpopular things. So I think the two things, inequality of property, and the government sort of being able to hang on to power because they've got a military threat behind them. How many people would really protest about something if there was no police force threatening to arrest you or pull you into line, etc.? How much wider would the opposition become then? Those sort of notional questions may be a good way of getting people to think about it. In closing, uh, what do you okay. hope for the future uh, when it comes to... Uh, protests and the protests with regards to policing uh, that are still ongoing? Well, I think I think just the protests will continue. I, I, I talk about a, a book that I enjoyed called um, Riot Strike Riot by uh, Joshua Clover that came out a few years ago, American author. And he kind of argues that, we, that we're in a new era he calls Riot Prime, where, you know, he kind of argues historically people could only riot. That in the industrial period, People use the strike weapon more. Uh, and then he says, now in kind of post-industrialism, where we'll, the, the movement's come back onto the streets and we're seeing riot prime. And although I don't agree with the sort of decline of industry thing, and I think there's lots of examples of workers doing stuff, I think the riot prime thing and that return to the streets notion is, is very strong now. You know, we are seeing you know, mass street protests in so many different countries. Often these movements are defeated. You know, you can get massive movements like Hong Kong or Myanmar or Chile that are really strong, but they do get defeated. But then you also get, you know, re reactionary coups that are overthrown by leftist presidents and, and big, big, big lefty campaigns. And, and you get a reaction against them and things keep coming back around. So, you know, the world is too unstable for there not to be a lot more struggle. And uh, I think as long as people have got the capacity to learn from it, they'll, they will learn that the police aren't on their side and that, you know, with solidarity and support, then we can have enough power to resist them. Well, I want to thank you, Matt Clement, for okay. coming on Parallax Views. And I hope people will check out the book, No Justice, No Police, The Politics of Protest and Social Change. Brilliant. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Joji. All the best. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Matt Clement, editor of No Justice, No Police, The Politics of Protest and Social Change. My apologies for the lack of episodes released last week. We were dealing with a hurricane where I was at in Florida, and it was just a very hectic time for me. So my apologies for that. Again, if you'd like to hear episodes like this a bit earlier than the rest of my listeners, please join my Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerlax Views to Parallax Views with Jerlax Views. The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. 
that you prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like right. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.